Good morning. Do we have any uh, veterans or active servicemen, women here today? Yes. All right. As a church, as a church, we want to thank you for your service. It's because of men and women like you that we get to enjoy the freedoms that we do in this country. So thank you. Thank you very much. All right, welcome to Element. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the seats. Feel free to use one. If you don't own one, take it home with you as our gift to you. Uh, we have sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. They look like this. They have some notes and the scripture references and some questions that hopefully we can go through later. Also, there are these blank cards. As we've been going through the Reason for God series, we, um, some people have had questions, and so we ask you to write those questions down, and then hopefully we'll come back to these at a later date, and we'll answer some of those questions probably in a series or something like this. So again, welcome uh, this morning, and please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. And we see that, Lord, in what you have created. Lord, the beauty of all that you have made and that we get to enjoy. We thank you that you have revealed yourself yourself to us in such a magnificent way. And we thank you that even more specifically than that, Lord, you have revealed yourself to us by your son, Jesus, through whom we have redemption, Lord, and we have now union with you and we enjoy life with you. And so we thank you for that. We pray that you would speak to us through your words this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, So again, this morning, we are going through uh, continuing our Reason for God series that is based on Tim Keller's book with the same title. And this is week 10, but technically it's week 9 because Aaron and I switched. He went out of town, and so I'm doing this particular week. It's a 12-part series. So far, we've looked at several objections or doubts that skeptics have about Christianity. We looked at uh, the exclusivity of Christianity, how a good God could allow suffering, Christianity as a straitjacket, the church and injustice, how there could be a place called hell, science versus Christianity, and taking the Bible literally. Last week we turned the corner and we started looking at reasons for faith, and we started with the problem of sin. This week we're actually looking at what we find in chapters 8 and 9. We're looking at the subject of the clues of God, the clues of God and the knowledge of God addressed in those chapters. So if you're reading along with us, you can read chapters 8 and 9 this week. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have any books available, but you can get them on Amazon or download them on Audible, and uh, you can get that uh, for free as a a sample. Anyway, I want to start with a question this morning. Is it possible to know that God exists? Because if it's possible that God can be known to exist, then it would seem highly likely that he would be involved and he would intervene in human affairs. And as Christians especially, this is a very crucial question because knowing God is primarily what Jesus is all about. The Apostle Paul, he wrote in Colossians 1.15 that he is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus himself is recorded as saying in John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus also made the scandalous claim that no one knows who the Father is except whom the Son chooses, except the Son and whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
And so if there is no God or if God can't be known to exist, which would be the case if there is no God, then what is left of Jesus' work? And worse still, Christianity would then be just a huge deception. Rather than being the redemptive cornerstone for a broken humanity, Jesus would just be another gentle cynic, as some of the Jesus scholars now say. Now, I enjoy spending time in nature and most mornings during my quiet time. I like to go outside and watch and listen to the birds and look at the plants and look at the trees and feel the breeze. And you can call me weird, but I even like the wind in Santa Maria. I don't like the smell, but the wind is, is okay. It's not bad. And I'm fortunate enough that I'm able to work near the beach so I can drive a mile down the road and I can eat lunch by the ocean. And the life that's seen in nature reminds me of God's presence and it helps me to feel connected to him. We have a hot tub in our backyard and many evenings I'll just sit out there in the dark and I'll look up at the heavens and I'll look up at the stars and just watch the people flying by at 30,000 feet and I'll think about the power and the goodness of God in all that he has made. Now God, by definition, is infinite and we as human beings, we are finite. So God would have to reveal himself to us in such a way that we could know him and that we could relate to him. And theologically, God's revelation falls into two basic categories. His general revelation, and this is where God communicates about himself to all people at all times and in all places. And then also his special revelation. And this is where God communicates particular things about himself to particular people at particular times. And next to Jesus himself coming, the Bible is the primary example of God's special revelation. And two weeks ago, we talked about why we believe the Bible is reliable to be trusted as God's specific revelation of who he is and what he has done and his plan for all mankind. But in general revelation, God manifests himself through the natural world and through the inner being of all people. And this revelation, it's general in the sense that it's universally available to all people everywhere and also in that its message generally reveals that there is a powerful and an eternal creator that exists, and it's definitely not us. And this is the type of revelation that Keller refers to in the book as clues of God, or divine fingerprints, as he calls it, that when looked at honestly by anyone, they strongly point to God's existence as one to whom every human being will give an account. So what are some of these clues for God's existence? Well, the first one is the physical universe itself. Both biblical and classical Greek sources take the physical universe to be conclusive evidence of the existence of God. Biblical statements such as King David writing in Psalms chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Or in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clear, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, on the classical uh, side, the Greek philosopher Plato, in the 4th century B.C., he describes this non-physical reality that he calls soul, that's treated as the divine source of motion, which means change in the physical universe. 
And then this was then later refined by his most famous student, Aristotle, where he explains that this ultimate or this prime mover of the universe is a personal being. Pure thought, he calls it, that does not change or move, but directly or indirectly moves everything else through the attraction of its own radiant magnificence. And the Stoic philosopher Epictetus, who was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, he said this, from the very construction of a complete work, we are used to declare positively that it must be the operation of some artificer, which means a skilled craftsman or an inventor, and not the effect of mere chance. Does every such work then demonstrate an artificer and visible objects not so? He argues, let them explain to us, how is it possible that things so wonderful and which carry such marks of contrivance should come to pass spontaneously and without design. And so this almost irresistible impression of a maker of the physical universe that is what Paul is referring to when he claims that the existence and the nature of God was plain. It was shown to human beings. And this impression remains strong even up to today. David Hume, who's often thought of as the prince of the modern skeptics, he concedes this. He says, The whole frame of nature bespeaks an intelligent author, and no rational inquirer can, if after, after serious reflection, suspend his belief a moment with regard to the primary principles of genuine theism and religion. So, why is there something rather than nothing? Where did the universe come from? Because either it was not produced by anything or it was produced by something that's not physical or natural, but rather something spiritual or supernatural. And everything we know of in this world, from galaxies to molecules, it's contingent and it has been caused by something that is outside of itself. But this only happens in the context of other physical things, not in the context of nothing. Physical things come from physical things. But where did it all start? It's now widely accepted that there was a beginning up to the physical universe, that it did come from nothing and what's been called the Big Bang. But what caused that? What could be that something that's outside of nature that caused that? Only a supernatural, non-contingent being that exists from itself. And although this may leave us short of establishing that this source is the God of the Bible, it does provide important knowledge about this creator, other than it's not physical. We know that it must be of great, of tremendous power to have produced the physical universe. How big? We don't know how big. But if we take Einstein's special theory of relativity, that equation E equals mc squared, if we take that seriously, the source of the world must involve enough E or enough energy to translate into the M or the mass of the physical universe. That is a lot of energy, a lot of power. And we also learn that if this source has the capacity to initiate or to cause the physical world, it's by the capacity of a will and by the exercise of choice, much like we humans experience in the things that we initiate and that we cause in this world. And so because of that, the creator must also exercise the power of thought or intelligence in the choices that are made because choices are consciously selective and they're directional. It not only considers what it does and the results of that, but also what it might do. And that's the nature of intellect. Now, in the wake of Darwin's theory of natural selection, our increased understanding in recent years about the astonishing complexity of life as we know it has led some longtime atheists like Anthony Flew and like Francis Collins to reconsider their positions. 
But even so, the complexity and the order that we see in the universe, it reaches far beyond. And it's actually prior to the complexity of living beings to which Darwin's theory applies. In other words, the universe would have been there even if life and evolution had never occurred. And this brings us then to another clue, which Keller calls the cosmic welcome mat. The order that is glaringly present in the physical universe, it's led many thoughtful people to conclude that the source must involve a very high degree of intellect. The intelligent design has become clearer and clearer as we've learned more about our world and how incredibly fine-tuned it has to be to support organic life. In Francis Collins, he points out that there are 15 constants required from gravity to the speed of light to various other nuclear forces that all must be dialed in to such precise values that if even one of them was off by a millionth, or in some cases a millionth millionth, the universe would not have come together the way it is. There would be no galaxy, no stars, no planets, no people. And the chance of this happening randomly without an intelligent designer is so infinitesimally small that the only way to accept it as a possibility is to suppress the evidence and common sense. Now, on a much uh, simpler, more human scale, it would be like you going to the beach where I just had my lunch and I lost my watch and you found it. And you, you saw that and you would you know, look at that and you would recognize that this has been put together in such a way that each of the parts fit together to display and to record time, you wouldn't say, well, what a coincidence. How did all of these things just come together and and fit to do this amazing thing? You would know that it was the result of some able person that planned and brought about this amazing way that each part fits with all the other parts. And it's the same way with the natural world and how each part of nature meshes with all the other parts in specific ways to fulfill certain functions. Somebody must have designed eyes and digestive systems, and a balanced atmosphere, and much else that we find in our world. And the interesting thing is the only way that we can even learn these things and study these things is because of another clue for God, and that is the regularity or the laws of nature. The fact that we can rely on water to boil tomorrow under the same exact conditions as it does today, that helps us to learn from our experience and to reason, and it's only because... Nature will behave in a consistent and predictable way. Keller points out that modern science arose and that it thrived amongst Christian civilization because of its belief in an all-powerful, personal God who created and sustains this orderly universe. And so the physical universe, with its complex and its precise order to sustain life as we know it, there are clues that God exists that we can observe because they are external to us as human beings. But then Keller, he goes on and he now highlights clues that are internal to us. And because they are, we can become so familiar with these things that we take them for granted. And we never realize that these might actually be greater clues for God's existence. For example, our recognition of and our longing for beauty. When we witness the beauty in nature or we see masterful works of art or we listen to inspired musical compositions, we often describe them as heavenly or transcendent or marvelous because we recognize that they have meaning and they have significance. 
And in the presence of great art and beauty, even those who believe that man is the result of accidental, blind, natural forces, and that beauty and love are just biological responses that helped us to survive, even they acknowledge the inescapable feeling that there is real meaning and there's truth in life and that love means everything. And someone might say, well, those are just feelings. That doesn't make them true. But Keller points out that these experiences, they're more than feelings. They more accurately reflect appetite or desire. And St. Augustine, he argued that these unfulfilled desires are clues to the reality of God, just like our other desires and appetites correspond to things that actually exist to satisfy them. Hunger, sexual desire, tiredness, relational desire, they all correspond to things that exist to fulfill those, those desires. And so, too, our longings that are evoked by beauty, and joy, and love, they are desires that point us to something that nothing in this world can ultimately fulfill. And as hard as we may try, no amount of food or sex or friendship or success can satisfy it. And so these unfulfillable longings that we experience is a clue that that's something that we really desire exists. It's a major clue that God is there. And so we've talked about the clues that are seen in the natural order of our world, the physical universe and the orderly intelligent, intelligent design and the regularity of nature. But now Keller, he moves on and he talks about now what's in the realm of the moral order of our world. And this is more than a clue. This is knowledge that we cannot escape. And this is the idea that human beings have a moral impulse, which we call a conscience, a sense of right and wrong, um, of justice and of moral obligation. Now, many believe it's wrong to impose one's moral standards on others, especially those from another culture, and that each person should be able to define those truths for themselves. But those very same people would have to admit that there are some things that are done in this world that no matter what somebody believes about their correctness, that they are wrong. Most people would agree that actions such as rape and murder and human trafficking and genocide are morally wrong. And this reveals that there is some kind of moral standard that we believe in regardless of what anybody else feels about them. We intuitively know that these standards exist and they they are apart from us. And we use them to evaluate our feelings and, and our values. And our conscience tells us that we have a moral obligation to the things that we know to be right or wrong, regardless of personal feelings or self interest or what our community or what our culture might say. The Nazis who exterminated Jews, they may not have felt that that was immoral. They may have even felt that they were performing a service to humanity. But that doesn't matter because we all should know inherently that it was wrong. And where does that come from? Where do, the, where do these moral standards come from? Why do they exist? And the secular answer, according to Keller, is the so-called clue killer of, psych, of evolutionary psychology. And this is the idea that everything from our recognition of beauty to our moral obligation is the result of natural selection and that it evolved in order to help us survive. And it's this idea that our genetic tendency to act unselfishly or cooperatively with others survived in greater numbers than those who were selfish and who were cruel. And they say that this is why we enjoy beauty and why we feel obligated to sacrificially help strangers or even our enemies at times who are in peril. But this goes against everything that we know about natural selection and survival of the fittest, which is concerned only for the well-being and benefit and survival of our own kind. 
And it was precisely that kind of thinking that was instrumental in justifying the racial Nazism that led to the Holocaust. Now, the question of human rights is a focal point for morality in our world. This idea that every human being has inherent dignity and that it's wrong to violate the dignity of other human beings. But why should any of us believe that? Where does that human dignity come from? What does it depend on? In providing some possibilities, Harvard professor Alan Dershowitz, he points out that this idea of natural evolution, it thrives on violence. It thrives on predation in order to survive. And so there is no way to get the concept of individual human dignity from the things that we see in nature. And so another possibility is that we as a people created this idea of human dignity um, and we honor individual human dignity because it's in the best interest of society or in our communities. But we've also seen examples where community majorities sanction terrible violence against other human beings. And because majority legislation on human rights goes both ways, there has to be something more on which to base it. And so we're left with this possibility then that human rights come from a God who created people in his own image. And therefore, each human being is sacred and inviolable. And although Dershowitz rejects this as the basis for humanity, he and others have no answer as to what this something more might be on which to base it. Law professor Michael Perry, he concludes that though it's clear that there is a religious ground for morality of human rights, it is far from clear that there is a non-religious ground, a secular ground for human rights. And referring to German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche's well-known claim that God is dead, he says that any and all morality of love and human rights is baseless. If there is no God, as they say, then there is no good reason to be kind, to be loving, or to work for peace. But the problem is, all of those people who say there is no God or there is no meaning to human life, that none of them can or want to live as if that is true. They go on appreciating beauty, longing for love, continuing as if life does have meaning and that human dignity must be protected. And this is why Keller points out that this so-called clue killer is ultimately another clue for God. Because even though they can't justify these things in a world without God, they still know that they exist. As a matter of fact, they can't not know that they exist. And so they're actually being disingenuous because they're living off of and they're enjoying values that should not exist in their own worldview. So it's because of all of these general revelations that nobody can claim ignorance. That makes all of us accountable before God. In the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, the Apostle Paul, he writes this. He says, For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What this tells us is that even without the special revelation of God's law or his commands, that all people will be responsible before God because of their conscience, this internal law that bears witness to their thoughts and their actions. It doesn't mean that without the law that 
anybody can fulfill the, the law's requirements because we, we know nobody can do that. Even those who have the law couldn't do that. We see that in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. It says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And so what we see here is that this internal law in the unbeliever, it works to perform the same function as the law did for the Jews. And we see in Galatians chapter 3 that this was not to justify us before God, but it was to make us aware of sin and to lead us to faith by bringing us to Jesus Christ. And so all of these clues in the general revelation of God serve then as the law does to make us guilty, not to make us righteous. And so we see then from the revelation in nature, the physical universe, that man ought to conclude that there is a powerful and an eternal God that exists. And then from the revelation that is inside of each person, that internal law, our conscience, man should realize that he does not live up to that standard. And even though the content of that morality may vary culturally, we all know that there is a moral standard to which we ought to follow. And if we don't suppress that knowledge, the conclusion should be plain to us that we all fall short of that standard. And we are all guilty in relationship to God. The evidence has been there for all to observe. But it's not a guarantee that all will observe it, or that all will understand it, or that all will even believe it. And so what is a person to do then with this general revelation? Well, we need to start by examining the biblical view to see if it explains these clues of God and our moral sense any better. Because if we believe that God exists, then the mysteries of our physical universe, they make perfect sense. We will know where the Big Bang came from and why the universe is fine-tuned for organic life and why the laws of nature are so predictable. And we'll also know why our intuitions about the meaningfulness of beauty and love and human dignity are to be expected because they come from a God of beauty and love and peace and justice in whose image we have been created. And we'll understand that the violence and the hate and the pain that exists in our world are because we as people are broken by sin and we need redemption. And we'll also realize that God has not been vague about himself, but he has specifically revealed himself to us in his son Jesus, through whom he has provided that redemption and he makes all things new, even us. It requires what John Calvin calls the spectacles of faith. He says, without them, everything a person sees is blurry, but with them, he can see clearly. After second service, somebody said, I really like that. You need the spectacles in order to see the spectacle or the spectacular creation. I didn't think of that, but that was really good. And it, it's what Aaron also talked about when he, he referred to C.S. Lewis last week, when C.S. Lewis says he believes in God, as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And so this would explain why somebody may not recognize God in his creation. But with the glasses of faith, when we put those on, his sight improves and he's able to see God in his handiwork. When one is exposed to the specific revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they respond in faith, their mind is cleared by the renewing power of God's spirit, enabling them to see what is distinctly there. So how can we know for sure that God exists? 
by humbling, humbly coming to him, by humbling ourselves, coming to him in trusting faith and asking him to show us what has been there all along. And of this faith, the writer of Hebrews, as we read earlier, said, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. In verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we find then that God has revealed himself to every person in such a way that we are all without excuse if we deny him. But those who honestly seek to know him through faith in Jesus Christ, they're going to find that not only has God always been there, but he has known all of the details of our lives and that he has set his love on us from before the foundation of the world. And that God invites all of us, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 34, verse 8, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's what he invites all of us to do today. So I want to invite the band to, uh, to come up. And if you have tasted and if you have seen and you know that God is good and you have become his, as we do every week, we come to the Lord's Supper, we come to communion, where we take that cracker and we break it and we're reminded of Jesus' body and we dip it in the wine or the grape juice and we remember his blood that was shed to cleanse us from our sin and from unrighteousness. And so as we think about that, we realize that there is no amount of good works, there is no amount of religious activity that can cleanse us from our sin, that can cleanse our conscience from its guilt. And so God had to provide a way. And we think about that goodness that God provided his son to die for our sins. And not only to die, but to live the perfect life. He lived the life that we couldn't live. And he died the death that we should have died. And beyond that, he was raised from the grave to give us hope and to give us new life and to make us new. And so if you have tasted of his goodness, as you come to this table, you remember God's goodness and what he has provided for all of us. If you have never done that, then today would be your opportunity to do that. And there will be people praying in the back that will be there to talk to, to ask questions, to answer questions, and they would love to talk to you about that. We're going to worship God through our giving. And we don't pass a plate here at Element. Giving is a response to all that God has done for us. So there are offering boxes uh, at, at all of the exits, and we simply give back to God a little of what he's given to us. And so why don't you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your goodness and your greatness, Lord. We thank you that you haven't been vague, Lord, but you have revealed yourself in some tremendous ways, Lord. Your goodness is seen in the creation, Lord. Your glory is seen in all that you have made, in all that we enjoy. Father, and in our hearts, we, we know that the beauty that we experience and the love and the joy that we experience, that ultimately, Lord, it's rooted in you, a God who is good and loving and just. Because of your just your justice and because of your love, Lord, you provided redemption for us. You, you provided salvation, Lord, because we couldn't save ourselves. Without you, Lord, we are all condemned. We all fall short of that standard. But because of you, now we stand before you in the righteousness of Christ. 
as one who lived that perfect life and who imparts that to us. And we enjoy that right standing with you. And we thank you for your grace and for your mercy to us. Father, you're so good to us. We, we pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us in specific ways, Lord. For those in this room who may not know you or are wrestling with these ideas, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them in a very specific way, Lord, that they may hear your call and that you would draw them to yourself. For each of us, Lord, in this room uh, that continue to maybe deny certain parts of our lives to you, Lord, we pray that, Father, we would be able to turn those over to you and to walk in the freedom that you have for us. We praise you, we worship you, we thank you for your goodness. We go in your name, Jesus. Amen.